0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is the word of the Lord. Curtis Thomas once wrote, The more fractured we are, the greater we become spectacles to the world. And the more united in love, the more the world sees Christ. So I want to welcome you back to our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. It's named this because Paul declared right from the very beginning that the gospel is the very power to save all of those who believe, which is exactly what the letter is about. It's about the gospel and how we're to live in light of the gospel and its power to save. Now, before we jump into the text this morning, I just want to take a moment and remind ourselves of where we have been in this letter because the context really helps us to understand what we're going to look at today. In the first few chapters, Paul explains for us what the gospel is. It's the bad news that we are sinners under the wrath of God, and it's the good news that we are justified by faith in Christ. After that, Paul explains the blessings that the gospel gives to those who believe it, including peace with God, access into his grace, and the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then he explains to us how the gospel works. I mean, really, how can one man bring all of humanity who believe in him into right relationship with God? Well, Paul explains, just as Adam was our representative before God in the garden, Jesus is our new covenant representative by faith, and we're united to him. And then he explains the freedom the gospel provides to believers from both the law and from sin itself. And this freedom is going to be important for us to keep in mind as we explore the text today. And then in chapter 8, Paul takes us by the hand and he pulls us to the summit of our hope in Christ and he shows us the glorious truth that all believers who trust in Christ are completely safe in the hand of God. The promise of the gospel is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's no separation for those who are in Christ from the love of God. And then right before, right after that, Paul explains <clears throat> the reason why our hope is so secure. And that is the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. God is the one who brings salvation to his people. And it is his work that he accomplishes in us. And because of that, we can rest secure in him and that he will see us safely home. But then after that... Paul gets real practical and begins to tell us how we're to live now, that we know this. How do we live in this new, born-again life in light of the power of the gospel? Now that we have a deep theological understanding of the gospel itself, how should this impact how we live our day-to-day lives here and now? And beginning in chapter 12, Paul reminds us that the gospel, because of the gospel, we have been restored in a relationship with God. And because of that, we ought to... Live that way. We ought to live our lives in light of God's mercy, as Paul says, as a living sacrifice to God. Not allowing ourselves to be shaped by the world around us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we are to be transformed from the inside out, seeking to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And the manifestation of that life, the fruit of that life, is how we live. Before the rest of the world. How do we live with our fellow man? Paul has been unpacking for us what that looks like. Beginning with the family of God. Paul explains that we who belong to the family of God. Ought to humbly submit to one another. Loving each other. Sacrificing for one another. And serving each other. Recognizing that we are a family. And more than that we are part of one another. That we are part of the same body. And then Paul moves on to explain how we live this transformed life towards those who are not part of God's family, especially those who are hostile toward us and even hostile to God himself. And Paul tells us that we who are in Christ ought to live in harmony with everyone around us to the best of our ability, and that we're to seek to live lives at peace, even with those that are hard to to be around, and that we're to bless and be good to even our enemies, and that we are to trust in God's justice, and we're to be compassionate to everyone. And so Paul says, in light of the gospel, in light of this radical new life, live in a way that honors God before all people, including those who love us, and even those who don't. Paul, in essence, is saying that the gospel, the essence of living out the gospel, is to be a good neighbor. And then he says, it's also to be a good citizen by living in submission to those in authority over us because God is the author of authority and out of respect for him, we are to live our life visibly submitted to those that he has put in place in authority in our lives. So be a good neighbor and be a good citizen. And the idea that holds all of that together, what makes that work is love the supernatural love that flows from the Holy Spirit into our hearts, pouring out into the rest of the world. And as we as we talked about, this love is a debt that we owe to the world. It's the fulfillment of the law. And this love, as Paul says, does no harm to its neighbors. And so to this point, Paul has unpacked for us the power of the gospel and how And and, and he has told us how to live in light of the gospel, which is to be a good neighbor and a good citizen. And then we talked about the reason why we're to live this way. Paul had told us is because the day is drawing near. We as Christians live in the overlap of the already, but not yet. We see as Christians our hope on the horizon, but we are surrounded by people and many people around us who are not ready to meet Christ when he comes back. And so Paul exhorts us to live as an example of God's love and light for the rest of the world as the day draws near so they may also be saved. And we do this out of love for our fellow man. And then then at the end of chapter 13, Paul tells us how we do this. He tells us that we are to do this by putting on Christ. And the last time we were together in Romans, we spent a lot of time talking about what that means. Now, I'm not going to review everything, but in summary, what it means to put on Christ is simply to cover yourself in him. To clothe yourself in Christ so as to protect yourself from the enemy and temptation and to to project to the world around you the hope that we have in Jesus and his gospel. And we accomplish this in a number of ways. We put on Christ in a number of ways. But the most important ones for us to consider are, number one, saturate your life with the gospel so that it impacts every part of your life. And secondly, we are to avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. The ordinary things that God has given us to draw us close to him. As Kevin DeYoung once said, he says, if you want to be Christ-like, you need to have communion with Christ. And if if you're to have communion with Christ, you need to do it on his terms with the channels of grace he's provided. Prayer, Bible reading, church fellowship, the Lord's table. And that means is the only way to extraordinary holiness is through ordinary means. We as the family of God, to partake in the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to be close to him, which include, as we just mentioned, prayer, time with him on our faces before him, time in the word, reading, studying, meditating, time in corporate worship, which includes fellowship and exhortation and encouragement and teaching and baptism and the Lord's table and on and on. We put on Christ by exercising and participating in the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. And it is through that that we live out the hope before the rest of the world around us. Now with that, what is central to our participating in the ordinary means of grace and what is central to us putting on Christ in a way that protects us and projects our hope in Christ is the same thing that's central to our understanding of chapters 14 and 15. And that is the essential nature of the gathering together of the body of Christ. The essential nature of, of the church and corporate worship. Now, let me, let me just be clear. What Paul has to say in today's text And the rest of chapters 14 and 15 is grounded in the essential nature of the church and belonging to the church and participating in church life. In fact, without that understanding of the church, what Paul has to say here in the next few chapters will not make sense outside of that context. The truth is being part of the local church and gathering together for corporate worship is essential. Essential to Christian life. Now now hear me. I'm not saying that church attendance is essential for your faith. It's not what I said. As many rightly say, I don't have to go to church to be saved. That is true because we affirm over and over and over again you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you need a reminder of that, just look at the placards back on the back wall that Brother Robert made for us that says those things. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not of our works and not by our church attendance. But what I am saying is God saved you by grace through faith to be a part of the body of Christ. That's the purpose. So that you may grow up in your faith, that you may grow to full maturity, that you may grow and fulfill the good works that God has appointed for you to do. If you have questions about those things, then read Ephesians 2 through 4. You were saved by God and adopted into his family to be a part of the body of Christ. So being part of a church is essential to our Christian life and maturity. Now understand that this is not a very popular topic today, though. In fact, it's quite popular to say things like, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. That's a very common phrase nowadays. I love Jesus. I just can't stand his people. For many, the idea of Christians being obligated on some level to belong to and participate in the life of the local church, for many of them, seems to be anti-gospel. The idea of those who are in Christ are expected to belong to one another may seem to some to be unbiblical. But the fact is, the scriptures make it clear that those who are in Christ are part of one another inextricably, as Paul had made clear already in Romans chapter 12. He says, for as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And hear this, and individually members of one another. The scriptures make it clear that Christians are a part of the same body and there is an expectation that we more than just tolerate each other that we live and serve in community together. But the problem is that there are many people who call themselves Christian who are anti-church. There are people who confess the name of God who are anti-authority. There are people who who want to want God to redeem them but they are anti-commitment. There are people who think that their own self-educated studies And notions about faith and the Christian life and the church trumps all that the the Bible teaches about living together in community um, under the shepherding of qualified elders and pastors. There are some people that think that they just know all the answers more than anyone else. They want everything. I want you to hear me on this. They want everything that the Bible has to offer except the very means of grace God has given them to grow towards maturity in the church. But the absolute undeniable truth is that all Christians, all Christians, are to live and serve together and grow together in a unified body of believers, as a unified body of believers under the shepherding and leading of qualified elders and pastors. The Bible explicitly teaches that each member is to belong and serve and submit themselves to the family of faith. And the overwhelming context of the New Testament bears that out. It's only when we accept that foundational understanding can we actually be able to fully see what much of the New Testament teaches about including what Paul is teaching about Christian life in chapters 14 through 15. What Paul talks about in these next few verses and, and how to live in light of the gospel assumes that all Christians belong in communion together in a local assembly. And that's how he addresses the church in Rome, a gathering of believers who live together for edification and for the glory of God. And that's the context that we use to begin our our observations of the text today. In, In chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. I want you to understand that this is one of the most important but one of the most overlooked and most misunderstood and misapplied texts in in the entire Bible regarding church life. Hear these words again. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. In this context, Paul is calling for unity in the local church. That's what he's calling for is unity. And as you survey the New Testament, especially Paul's writings, one of the overarching themes you will see again and again and again and again is the theme of unity. In fact, unity is one of the primary themes of the letter to the Ephesians, being unified in the body of believers. Unity in the church is a vital, is a vital truth to the Christian life and vital to the mission of the gospel. As Thomas uh, Manton once wrote, "Division in the church always." Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. Those are words worth remembering. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. And so Paul in chapters 14 through 15 begins to explain the importance of unity in the church as a way to live in light of the gospel. And so the essential nature of the church and the unity of the church are critical for understanding of what Paul is unpacking for us in these two chapters. But the thing that we need to notice here is, is that Paul makes it clear that unity in the church does not mean uniformity of its members. I'm going to say that again, because I think it's an important thing that we think about as we go forward. Unity of the church does not mean uniformity of its believers. Being unified together in Christ doesn't doesn't mean that we all have to be exactly the same. Again, listen to the words. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. The NIV actually renders this verse in a way that I think is more helpful. It says, except the ones whose faith is weak, not quarreling over disputable matters. Disputable matters. Now, the essence of what Paul is saying is there are a number of things that are important to certain people. they are important issues to them. But these things should not get in the way of unity. Things that ought not to create conflict or arguments or division in the church. There are things that some people hold on to is is important. And though they feel passionately about them, though they feel strongly about them, these things should not lead to infighting and quarreling in the church. And they certainly should not prevent unity. In fact, Paul says, accept these people and don't quarrel over disputable matters. Well, what are these disputable matters? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging because he expands on this in chapter 14 on a number of things that some people have disagreement about. In fact, there are three things that Paul identifies as disputable matters. They are eating meat, specifically meat that might have been sacrificed to idols, the day that a person's esteem for worship, and what a person drinks. These are the three things that Paul identifies and says these are disputable matters. You shouldn't quarrel over them. And these are real examples of of disputable matters matters that actually threatened the unity of the church in Rome. And Paul is saying as though many of those in the church have strong opinion about these things, these things should not create division. It doesn't matter. If a person eats meat or doesn't, it doesn't matter if one person drinks wine or abstains from it altogether. It doesn't matter if a person esteems Saturday or Sunday as a day to worship God. These things, Paul says, should not divide the body. These are non essential issues that create, that can create division in the church. And understand, Right, who Paul is talking to, to here? He's talking to a a church in in Rome that at one time was predominantly Jewish when it was first began, but then the emperor at some point kicked all the Jews out of Rome, historically speaking. And that means the church was then largely Gentile, It was exclusively Gentile for a while. And then the Jews come back and they find that the church is all Gentile and all the leaders are Gentile. And because of that, the church looked and felt very different than what they were used to, kind of like here at First Baptist Church. There have been people who come here and part of our our church years ago, in fact, uh, Paul, was a member of this church years and years and years ago, he could probably testify that things are very different now than they were before. There are people who will notice that that we don't insist that everybody wear a suit and ties anymore. People will notice that we don't insist that... Amen, right? (laughs) There are people who will notice that we don't insist that women wear dresses and that, that we don't have an organ anymore, right? That there isn't a picture on the wall of Jesus knocking on the door, as some people recall, was up there at one time. I've never actually seen it, but I've heard about it. right? There are some people who notice that we don't have pews, but we have comfy chairs. There are some people who notice that we don't use little red hymnal books anymore, but we put the words up on the screen. Right? There are people who notice right, that things are different, but yet we are still the same church, the same church family. It's just some cultural things have changed. Now, here's the thing. Most people are okay with that, but some people are really bothered by that. And it was the same in Rome. The Jewish church became Gentile. It changed culturally, and the differences were kind of a source of trouble. In fact, one of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter was to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. He wanted to ease that cultural and racial tension. And so what Paul is saying is there are some cultural differences among you in the church, but you should not argue over these things. They should not create division. It should not disrupt your fellowship with one another. You need to set aside your differences and be unified because unity of the body of believers is an important factor to Christian maturity. Now, with that, let's get clear about what Paul is not saying here. Because there are some people who think that the church ought to pursue unity at all costs. There are some people who call themselves Christians who, who say that all Christians are to be accepted, or all people who call themselves Christian to be accepted, and we're to be unified with them no matter what the issue is, no matter what they even claim to believe. For some, that unity comes at all costs, even at the expense of gospel truth. As J.C. Ryle puts it, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It's a very unity with hell. And so let's be clear about what Paul is talking about here and what he's not talking about. He is, he is not talking about unity at all costs. And he's certainly not Denying the importance of theology. In fact, Paul spent 11 chapters laying out the theology of the gospel. This is not a command to ignore the essentials of our faith, as some would have us to do. And this is not a directive to pursue unity at all costs. And this is not a denial of things like the righteous requirements of God and the sin that separates God and man. What this is, is a command to not not allow non-essential things to destroy fellowship. It's a command to not allow our personal preferences and even our deeply held personal convictions to create division in the church. This is a call for unity over uniformity. We are to be unified, but we're not called to be alike in every way possible. And this was an issue for the other church. You had two groups of people that were very different in background and culture. And they were pushed together now by the grace of God into this local church. And, and, and there were some, some issues that popped up. The truth is, in the beginning, there were huge theological and cultural differences between the Jews and Gentiles that created friction. The Jews had the law given to them. That law defined their life and their identity, but the Gentiles had never received any such law, especially the unwritten traditions that came later that many of the Jews still held to. The Jews felt it was important to observe the Sabbath according to their traditions, but the Gentiles understood Christ to be their rest. The Jews had a strict set of dietary regulations that they grew up with, and the Gentiles had no sort of restrictions. The Jews had rules about dress and and washing your hands before you eat and complicated rituals with respect to how you dealt with people. And the Gentiles didn't. It was not the same. The Jews and the Gentiles in the early church were not slightly different in culture. They were substantially different. And this created, again, a great deal of friction because these issues were not minor things. In fact, some of these things were at the root of their identity. In fact, the Jews, for many of them, Their culture defined how they worship God. And so they were important issues to them. But notice Paul doesn't take a side here. He doesn't take a side and settle the issue. He doesn't say, you and the church of Rome, this is how you need to do it. He just simply says, don't argue about those things. Don't let them be issues that create division among the church. In fact, Paul doesn't even take a side. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. He doesn't say, you're right and you're wrong. He doesn't pass judgment. He does not pick a side. He he basically says, you just need to accept each other for how you are. And this right here is a lesson that the church needs to heed because I'm going to tell you if there's anything that the church in America is guilty of, it's creating a church where everybody looks alike, thinks alike, acts alike, votes alike, thinks alike, and appreciates all the same things, because we, we like hegemony, we like uniformity. Let's be honest, we like people who like us, who are who are like us. That's why you have churches that are full of people with a, that wear three-piece suits and the same haircut, right? That's why you have churches, right, where where all the members end up having the same political affiliation. That's why you have churches that are full of young hipsters and you have churches that are filled full of old people who don't want anything to change ever. That's why you will find churches that are predominantly white, some churches predominantly black, or Korean, or Hispanic, or Japanese, or whatever. Because our churches become little communities that reflect our personal preferences. We want to go where people do things the way we want them done. We want the music to be the way we like it. We want the preacher to preach the messages we like. We want to be in a church where you know, our kids are all forced to go to class instead of sitting with their parents if their parents choose. In fact, I've heard people at years ago say, I don't ever want to be distracted by a crying baby because it doesn't make me feel comfortable. We don't want to have to sit right in different chairs We don't want to have to smell that homeless guy who comes in occasionally to worship with us. We like things the way we like them. And we want people to be like us. And it gets worse because churches themselves then put in place rules to ensure this uniformity. Rules about things like going to movies or listening to music or watching certain TV shows. There are churches that take strong stands on things like tattoos and piercings and and clothing, saying that if you don't do the things the way we want them to do, then you can't be with us. Churches and members of churches make a point to express their opinion about makeup and tobacco and drinking alcohol and even denying fellowship to people over their opinion about those things, even though you can't substantiate your opinion from the scriptures. And then even there are Christians who think that, that sports, I mean, this is the new one I've heard, that sports are some form of idolatry. And you can't really love God if you, if you love sports. And I know, that, I know, I know you laugh, but it's, I, there's like, like a growing group of people that, that, that are very serious about it. They feel like you're worshiping a false idol if you decide you want to watch the Super Bowl. There are some Christians whose consciences will not allow them to enjoy sports, and so they think that everybody should be like them. But it doesn't end there, because there are churches and denominations that will not have fellowship with you as a Christian if you don't hold to their particular view of the end times. In fact, this church right here at one time, years ago, at one time, would not allow you to be a member if you didn't hold to a particular eschatological view of the end times a non essential in our faith not even a question of salvation in fact there were even there are even some people who will question a person's salvation depending on how you answer the question are you post trib pre trib mid trib whatever trib right there's but there's more i've actually heard a relatively famous pastor on on social media tell the members of his church from the pulpit, if you vote Democrat, get out of my church. I've heard other pastors tell their, their, their parishioners, if you voted for Trump, you're not even a Christian. And I can go on and on and on over the non-essential things that create division in the American church, but Paul says we're not to argue about these things. These things should not create division among us. They are, they're not supposed to interrupt our fellowship. I want you to understand and I want you to hear me. Paul isn't saying not to have conversations about these things. That's the only way we grow when we learn is to have conversations. He's not even saying that these things aren't important because they are important. They're important to, to some of us individually. And he's not saying we shouldn't have debates about these things. I think... Real civil debate between people who respect and love each other is an important part of the way we work through issues and learn from one another, right? But what he's saying is we need to not allow these things and our desire for uniformity to destroy unity. We need to be able to accept each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be able to accept each other as family, though we may be very, very, very different, And this, brothers and sisters, requires maturity. It requires that we mature enough in our faith to be able to accept one another, even though that we might have some things that are not very common between us. Again, let's look at what Paul says here. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. He goes on and says, one person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person may, pe- person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Now, I think that we need to address in this text is who is the weak one that Paul is talking about? Because that's the distinction he makes here, right? The weak one in the faith and the ones who are not. And understand, Paul isn't talking about being weak in saving faith. It has nothing to do with saving faith. And he's not talking about weak in the faith in our ability to trust God. He's not saying they're so weak that he doesn't even, they don't trust God. That's not the point he's making. And he isn't talking about young believers versus old believers because either one can be weak in the faith. He's talking about, in essence, spiritual maturity. And those who are spiritually mature are strong in the, in the faith, and those who were not so mature are weaker in the faith. And in this context, the weaker in the faith, in this context, the weaker in the faith are the Jewish Christians in Rome. Because of their background and because of their upbringing and because of their faith tradition, they are the ones who are struggling with eating certain types of foods right, that might have been sacrificed to idols. Their consciences, because of their upbringing and the way that they grew up, prevented them from eating meat at certain times. Their upbringing and traditions shaped their consciences. The Jewish Christians were very strict about a lot of things because of their consciences. They struggled to let go of how they used to live. And notice Paul says, welcome them. didn't say change them. He says, welcome them and not to despise them for abstaining. Why? Because the Gentiles had discovered by the way they came to faith that they had substantial freedom in Christ. They they didn't have food restrictions. They didn't observe the same festivals. They didn't have to observe the Sabbath the way that the Jews did. They had freedom in Christ. They didn't have to become Jewish in their culture to be Christians. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they there was no other cultural requirements put on them. They were, they were just saved and just as Christian as the Jews. And, and so they didn't have to a- adopt a Jewish identity to be saved. In fact, that's the issue behind the letter to the Galatians. If you read that, there were Jewish people claiming to be Christians who were trying to make the Gentiles in Galatia actually become Jewish in order to be part of the faith they were saying you can't actually be saved until you become Jewish and so Paul said that the, that these people are anathema they are cursed and what they're what they're teaching is another gospel that's cursed and so and so Christians have a new radical freedom in Christ and so much so that that it became the norm and it became an issue to the point where these Christians were being looked down, were, were actually looking down their noses at Jewish Christians. This was the other side of the coin. That these people were so used to having this freedom when they saw these peculiar Jewish people who were very strict in how they did some things, they were looking down upon them as if they were superior to them. To the point that the Gentiles didn't even want to be around the Jews and the Jews didn't want to be around the Gentiles. But Paul makes a point to say, welcome them. Yes, they are different than you. Yes, you have different perspectives about food and the Sabbath and about wine and other things. But don't despise them. Welcome them. And the thing that you need to understand is the word in the Greek here for welcome means more than to just tolerate them. It means more than just invite them in and let them sit down. It means to invite them into your inner circle. It means to be in close relationship with him. It means to, to go deep in your, your relationship with him. Paul is telling the Gentiles, who are vastly different than the Jews, you are to welcome the Jews into your lives because God has welcomed them. And even though that they, they're different from you, even though that their culture makes you uncomfortable, you need to welcome them. And by the same token, he says, the Jews don't pass judgment on the Gentiles for how they use their freedom. He tells the Jews, just because your conscience won't let you eat meat, don't judge them as if they're doing something wrong. Don't look down on them because you feel superior to them. Just because you have strong feelings about certain things doesn't give you right to judge. And then Paul says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another for it is before his own master that he stands and falls that he will be upheld for the lord is able to make him stand paul is saying that saying is who are you to sit in judgment of of someone who is of the faith and serves god god has accepted them why will you not are you better than him you have higher standards than God. Now, there's a lot still to see here in this text. And believe me, I went back and forth over the last few weeks trying to find a, a clean cutoff place. But I think this is where we have to kind of rest for a moment. There's a lot to see in this text and in chapters 14 through 15. And we're, we're going to spend a few weeks on this because it's too important to miss uh, as we walk through and unpacking this. But there are a couple of things I just want to leave you with as we wrap up this morning. And, and, and first of all, I want you to think about Paul's words here. The truth is, the majority of Christians, when they read this text, will see themselves, invariably, just because this is the way we do things, most Christians will see themselves as the strong believers and not the weak ones. Just admit it, that's, that's what you do, because that's what we all do especially if you've been a Christian for a little while, especially if you grew up in the church, especially if you've served in the church for any length of time, the tendency by default is for Christians to see themselves in this text as the strong ones. We will, by default, identify ourselves, not with the weak in faith, but the strong in faith. But the question that I have for you is, have you ever in your Christian life struggled with the freedom that some Christians walk in? Have you? Like the fact that some Christians feel completely free to partake occasionally in in wine or beer or some other alcoholic drink. Is that one of those things that you have wrestled with? Has that bothered you? Have you looked at people who have done that and say, they're not a Christian. Bible says. Right? But you can't. Yep. Does does that bother your conscience? Or have you ever said to yourself or believed at some point that Christians are not allowed to drink alcohol or smoke cigars or listen to heavy metal music or watch movies or TV? Have you ever thought that Christians need to look a certain way on Sunday? That there are Christians, that Christians are not allowed to have things like tattoos? Have you ever felt strongly about anything like that? If you have, then you have been or maybe are one who's weak in the faith. And and, and don't take it personal because I have been and maybe still am at times. I have struggled with the freedom many Christians walk in. There was a point in my life that I would only listen to Christian music because I felt that all secular music didn't matter what the genre was, was bad. You name it, I thought it was bad. I can only listen to Christian music. My my conscience struggled with the idea of secular music, whether it's country or rock and roll or or bluegrass or whatever you want. My conscience bothered me about that. But I'm and realized that I have freedom in Christ. Right? I have freedom in Christ to be able to listen to different types of music. Not to mention not everything that passes for Christian music today is actually very God-honoring if you listen to the lyrics, right? You listen to the Christian radio stations, you're going, wait a minute, is that about Jesus or is that about you, right? But that was one of those areas I had to really grow in, right? But let me give you another kind of in-your-face kind of example where I was a little bit a little bit more rough around the edges, I remember there was a time when Kim and I had a a newer house and one of her family members went to Hawaii and they brought back nice little gifts. And one of the little gifts that they brought, which what people bring from Hawaii, is one of those little tiki statues, right? And I remember some Christian person I knew who said that they were Christian for over 30 years said, you better not let them put that in your house. You better not let them put that in your house. I was like, why? Well, because those tikis, those are those are representation of Poly- Polynesian gods, and, and you can't have an idol in your house unless you become an idol worshiper. And I was a young Christian, so I was panicking. I'm like, we can't have that in the house. I know that they meant it in good, but no. Right? I don't care if, if your family disowns us. We're never going to put anything like that in our house. It wasn't until much, much, much later that I realized I was just really being very silly about the whole thing, right? Number one, it's a silly decoration. Number two, I don't worship statues. I worship the one true God, and there is not any representation of animal or anything that that is a God in itself. So there have been many times in my life that I was weak in my faith in this way. Not that I was weak in saving faith. It's just I was immature about some things. Have you ever been that way? All right. The thing that we need to realize is we need to be careful to not think too highly of ourselves as Christians. And and we need to be careful not to push our personal convictions and non-essential things on one another, especially in our culture today. In fact, notice Paul doesn't say you need to correct that person who's weak in the faith. He doesn't say anything about it, right? He says you need to welcome them. And notice he doesn't tell any of them, Jew or Gentile, change your convictions. He doesn't tell the ones weak in faith, you just need to buck up and be tough. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't tell the Gentiles, you need to to just stop doing the things that you do. He says, welcome each other and accept each other and not judge each other. And the basis for all of this is the gospel. Because God in his grace accepted them both and he accepted them both on the same exact grounds not anything that they could do but on the finished work of Christ on the cross and their faith in him and that is it they're equal in the eyes of God you see the gospel tells us that we all stand on the same ground regardless of our upbringing regardless of our traditions regardless of our families regardless of our religiousness And that we are all sinners in rebellion to God, deserving nothing but his judgment and his wrath. That's what God owes us. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses, helpless to do anything to change our condition. But God, by his own mercy and by his grace, by the counsel of his own will, decided on his own to redeem us. That's it. You didn't do anything. Right? I want you to understand that. You didn't do anything. God didn't look at you and say, ah, I really like him. That had nothing to do with it, right? God didn't look in the future and say, you know what? In the future, he's gonna do something really nice. No, God chose you by his grace. And because of that grace and mercy, he sent Jesus into the world to live the perfect righteous life that you couldn't live on your behalf, earning a righteousness you could never earn. And then he sent him to die on the cross in your place. Paying for your sins, so that when you put your faith in him, your sins are credited to him and his righteousness is granted and credited to you as if it's your own. It's the irrevocable gift of the gospel when you put your faith in Christ. And he died in your place, and then three days later was raised to life again, proving that God is faithful to keep his promises, and all who believe in him will not be. Put to shame. And that, brothers and sisters, is the basis of our fellowship. That is the basis of our unity as a body of believers, not our cultures, not our families, not our dispositions on certain non essential issues, but the fact that we are holding on to the same Savior. And because of that, He's united us together in one body, one family, in one church. All infilled by one spirit. Now, with that being said, what do we do? Well, if you're not in Christ, then put your faith in Jesus today. Turn to him, repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved is the promise of the gospel. Right? Call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. And if you are in Christ, now more than ever, rest in him and his finished work on your behalf. You're not going to make God love you more by what you do. And you're not going to make God love you less by doing something stupid, because you're going to, right? You were saved by grace through faith in Christ and rest in that and hold on to him and him alone, right? And then, this is what the world needs. Your family members need this. Your neighbors need to hear this. That there is hope in Jesus Christ in no other place. And it doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter what their predisposition is. That all are welcome at the foot of the cross. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.